0: Welcome, my flourishing friends, to episode two. In today's episode, we are going to be exploring the environmental ethos. We're going to consider the rationales that are out there for degrading our environment, and then think about some of the theories around conservation and environmental ethics. I'm Christina Hunter, and you are listening to the Live Well, Green podcast, all about sustainable well-being and green living. We explore how to do what is good for the planet and for ourselves in order to truly flourish. So let's just think about how we can rationalize the degradation of our environment. Well, how does this happen? Well, sometimes it just happens because of the circumstances. First of all, we can think about demographics. We know that humans have impacts. And as the number of humans increases, we increase our impact. And that's pretty simple. But in addition to an increasing number of humans on the planet, we also have an increasing impact per person. Now, this isn't true all across the world, but generally it is going up, and it certainly isn't the same, though, in every area. But overall, we know more people and more impact per person equals more pressure on the planet. So that's one of the ways in which we degrade the environment without really realizing it. And then sometimes we might just think about it as being done out of ignorance, that people don't know any better, that they just have some unintended consequences of their actions. And certainly that might be the case. Unfortunately, I think it's a little bit problematic when environmental organizations or governments think that... If we only tell people about their impact, they will stop doing that action. But that's certainly not the case because people need systems to go to. If they're going to move away from one system, they need something else to move into. One of the other reasons in which we might be degrading our environment is that we just don't value it properly. It's really, really hard to put economic value on the resources and the cycling of nutrients that we talked about last episode and the function of ecosystems and those services that are provided to us by the natural world. It's just technically hard to quantify because we have no technology that can replace the functioning systems of the planet. So this is really one of the biggest issues of our not taking action is that we don't always understand the economic costs of our degradation or not taking action to preserve or conserve the environment. We also think about That we might just have the opinion that exploitation is something that we should be doing, that we should deliberately be using the resources of the earth. Maybe we should be managing it. Maybe we should have domination over nature. So, those are also perspectives that people have that this is our role and even our obligation to use earth's resources and maybe manage the earth's resources. So, that brings us to the unfortunate circumstance of what we now call the tragedy of the commons. Now, this idea was popularized in an article written by Garrett Hardin in the journal Science in 1968. And he was talking about an idea that was first written in an essay in 1833 by a British economist, William Forrester Lloyd, in which Forrester Lloyd talks about a hypothetical example of the effects of an unregulated grazing that's allowed on common land. And the idea is that this common land or shared pasture is situated in a small rural agricultural community where everybody in the community can graze their cattle. Unfortunately, one of the farmers starts to overgraze. His overgrazing of that land degrades the land. All of the other farmers see that he's doing this and they can't stop him. And so they decide, well, if he's doing it, I can do it too. All of the farmers in the community start to overgraze. This means that the pasture becomes more and more degraded. And unfortunately, the resource becomes unusable by anybody in the community. Let's take a quick look at how that happens. Why does it happen that people get on board with doing something that they know is bad for them overall? Well, the first reason is that the degradation of that land is an externalized cost. They don't bear the cost themselves because it's not their pasture land, right? It's the common pasture. It's owned by everybody, not just them. And the other problem is that because it's a shared resource, the individual using it gets all the benefits of using it. But when it's degraded, they only get a portion of the degradation because that's shared by everybody now. So this is problematic, and it really can be seen as an important analogy when we think about other commonly held resources, when we think about things especially that are international or transboundary or move a lot, such as water currents, air, and we can also think about fish and forests and so on. So we think about these issues in terms of today's environmental issues also being subject to this idea of the tragedy of the Commons so what did Garrett hardin conclude in his paper in 1968 well he said in a situation where you have an increasing human population and you want to have an increasing standard of living on a finite planet unless some technological solutions come into play you must change the values of or the morality of the people involved in that degradation in order to avoid complete devastation. So how can we get there? How can we look at changing the values and the morals of people involved in the degradation? Well, that's really all of us. So how can we get there? Well, one approach would be to appeal to their conscience, right? We can think about imploring people to act more altruistically and less selfishly. And certainly in my city, I see that all the time, where some people act very altruistically and go to great measures to ride their bike in minus 30 degrees Celsius weather on icy roads, and they're acting very altruistically. But that's not all the case for everybody, and it's not something that we would all be able to or choose to do. So another approach would be privatization. So how does that work? Well, that means we're going to take that resource and hand it over or sell it to a company or an individual or a consortium or group of some sort and give them ownership over that resource so that they're more vested in managing that resource so that they presumably will want to manage it for the long-term health and sustainability of the resource. And that's one way that can work, but not always. The other approach that we sometimes take is called the polluter pays approach. Now, with polluter pays, we say that, okay, we're all going to use this, but if you do something wrong and if you pollute or mismanage this commonly held resource, you're going to have to pay for it. Like literally pay, you know, pay a fine or something like that. And that is really the basis of most of our legislated solutions around the world is around polluter pays systems. Now, this can work too, but it's also problematic. For one thing, oftentimes the fine involved in paying for that damage, first of all, can never repair the damage that was done. The deforestation can never really be undone or the polluted waterway from an oil spill isn't able to be really thoroughly cleaned up and that contamination will linger and linger for years and decades and even generations. So that's one of the problems that you can't fix it with money. And the other problem is that all too often the fines involved in polluter pay systems are just far too low. And that means that sometimes companies just say, well, that's a cost of doing business. I'll pay the fine. And unfortunately, this doesn't serve us well because it doesn't change behavior and it really isn't advancing us at all because we can't undo the devastation with the fine and it doesn't change the behavior in the first place. So polluter pays has its limitations. The other system that we can think about is around collective restraint, where we have self-imposed restrictions. So this is like the system of when I was in my 20s, but living with my friend, and we had self-imposed curfews. We wanted ourselves to get to bed on time so that we'd be fresh the next morning. So we gave ourselves curfews. And that's our own constraint. We had each other to support each other in the moment doing that. So that was our collective restraint, that we helped each other. And so that's something like our Paris Accord or the uh, other agreements made on the international level where we all agree to a certain standard and we're going to try to support each other in doing that. So that can be really useful. And similar to that is perhaps what is maybe one of the most hopeful ways in which we can change behavior at a social level, especially from person to person, neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, is just changing social norms. And we know that peer pressure is well and alive. You know, if you've ever had to buy the certain type of running shoe for a teenager, you know that peer pressure is real, but we can actually use that for good we can use peer pressure and social norms and changing norms to change the standards of how we think we should live collectively as a society. So we show our neighbors that, yeah, we actually recycle and compost, and we don't own a car, or we use this service for organic food delivery or whatever it is to make it more normal. And we talk about it. We encourage others to do it. We show them the website, how you get that co-op service and so on so that's a really great way to try to change social norms by showing others what you are doing and talking about it in a positive way and that can change and has changed norms over time the other thing that we can do is think about it in terms of our motivations why would we want to make change well we might do it for a variety of reasons We might do it because it benefits us. Well, we could encourage people to keep the trees on their property along the riverbank because that will help to prevent riverbank erosion and prevent their property from being eroded away and it will increase their property value as a result. So that would be a good reason to do it, right? Because it benefits you. We could also encourage people to change out their light bulbs in their houses to LEDs because it will cost less over the long term, even though there's an investment up front over the long run, it will be cheaper. So you'll have less energy bills and you'll be able to keep those bulbs for a longer time. Or maybe we want to do some work in terms of saving koala bears because of all the pressures they're under. But we we do that because we love them and we think they're cute and cuddly and adorable. Not really something you should cuddle, but nonetheless, we are interested in saving the koala bears because they're cute. Well, all of those rationales described with the trees and the light bulbs and the koala bears, those are all from an anthropocentric or human-centered view of the world. Right. So this means that I'm going to do what's good for the planet because it's good for me. It's good for human health or it's in my own economic interest or it's because I think it's something that should be done because I believe that it's beautiful or I have an emotional attachment to it or something like that. But it's all based on my needs and wants and understanding of the worldview. So that's the anthropocentric rationale for doing environmental conservation work. We can also think of it from a couple of different perspectives. And the next one that we can consider would be the biocentric. So this would mean that we believe that all life has ethical standing, and that we have impact on living things, and our ethics should extend to those other living things. Now, we might give all living things equal consideration, or some items might have greater consideration than others. It depends on how you play that out in your own ethical standards. But we can extend that further into the idea of ecocentric approach to the environment, where we believe that the integrity of the ecological system is what's most important, not just all the living things. It's the whole system. And in this model, we consider the system functioning more important than any individual within that system. So that might mean we would perhaps take out an invasive plant species if it's interfering with the functioning of that ecosystem. That's a little bit different than the biocentric worldview. But these ethics and worldviews are not new. These have been part of human history for as long as we have recorded history. We see it in the Aboriginal worldviews in Australia. The Aboriginals see the environment as a source of sacred teachings, where boulders and caves and lichens and all of the environment is a source of contemplation and even protection. This goes back to the time of Plato, where Plato is said to have written that the land is our ancestral home, and we must cherish it even more than a child cherishes their mother. And this also extends into the North American indigenous sacred teachings. In the North American indigenous culture, there's seven sacred teachings that are sometimes also called the seven grandfather teachings. And they have all kinds of relationship to protecting the earth. The first one is respect. And that is that all people should honor all of creation. And then the second one is that we should love unconditionally, that we should act with bravery is number three. And four is that we should have wisdom and cherish not only knowledge, but also to act with prudence with that knowledge. Then we should also have humility to know oneself as a sacred part of creation, and that we should act with honesty. And finally, with truth, knowing all of these things that we need to speak that truth. And each of those sacred teachings is represented by an animal in indigenous culture in North America. So this goes all around the world in all cultures that we have this reverence and respect for the natural world. In ancient India, we have an understanding in Buddhism of the importance of equity and harmony with the natural world embedded into that philosophy. In the Judeo-Christian traditions, we have texts from the Bible that talks about our relationship with the earth. And some of that has indeed led to Western management philosophies of domination and protection of the earth. And that ethic has been an interesting one in the way that it has evolved over time. All the way back to 1949, there was a forester and wildlife manager named Aldo Leopold. And you might have heard of him. He wrote a book called The Sand County Almanac. But before that, Aldo Leopold was trained as a forester, and in his training of that time... He was taught that there were a variety of species out there and some of them were good and some of those species were bad. One of those bad species was the wolf. And the wolf was bad because, of course, it preyed on other animals and sometimes on livestock and so on. He tells a story in one of his writings that his whole philosophy was upended one day when traveling through the forest that he was working in and managing. He came across a mother, wolf, and her two pups. He did what he was trained to do. He took out his rifle and he shot the wolf. He shot the mother. And it had a profound effect on him. He looked at that female wolf as it died and looked at those two wolf pups that were then orphaned. And he thought, what have I done? how is this the actions of a forester and wildlife manager? It changed him so profoundly that he started to write about it. And he wrote something around a topic called the land ethic in this book of his, The Sand County Almanac, that came out in 1949. And I have a little quote from that book to read to you here. And he says, A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity stability and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. End of quote. So in terms of our understanding of nature, we certainly have evolved since those times in our understanding of management. Further down along the line of those environmental ethics that we see out there is one called deep ecology. And this one is so interesting. This is where it is proposed that we really need to go through a process of self-realization to understand that we are actually inseparable from nature, that we are part of nature, and we must consider ourselves a part of that system, and that we should have equality with nature, that all beings should have equality. And we should protect all living things as we would protect ourselves. Further to that, we think in deep ecology that the whole is superior to the parts, which means that we are not the most important thing here on this planet Earth. It is the functioning of the whole system that is the most important. So deep ecology principles are really interesting. They say, first of all, that there is intrinsic value in nature, that the moth or the slug or the mollusk or the sediment all has value independent of the value that we might place on it. And that's interesting. It says further that there's a value in the richness and diversity of life forms, And that's an important consideration. And of course, we do consider that as part of our important consideration around biodiversity. But deep ecology principles go on to say that humans have no right to reduce this richness and diversity except to satisfy vital human needs. So that's an interesting word there, vital human needs. And then it goes on to say that we actually need to decrease the human population in order to flourish. Then they talk about the present human influence on the planet is excessive, and we need a deeply changed state of affairs in order to get to a system that is manageable and actually flourishing. That in order to get there, we need an ideological change. We need to increase the awareness of society in general in the difference between what is big and what is great. The obligation is on us to implement the necessary changes for society to get there. So deep ecology is probably on one end of the spectrum, whereas the anthropocentric worldview is on the other end of the spectrum, with a variety of different things in between that. But another environmental ethic that has emerged is one of ecofeminism. And it really started in the social movements of the 60s and 70s, with the civil rights and feminism waves emerging. And it talks about, in ecofeminism, the parallel role between man and woman and human and nature, and that the problems that we have with our management of our natural systems is that we're approaching it from a patriarchal perspective that this idea of domination and conquering is something inherently problematic with our approaches to managing ecosystems. So that's another perspective that we want to think about when we consider our environmental ethics and how we approach sustainability and the environment. The last one I want to touch on is one of environmental justice, where we think about fairness and equality across human populations and even across between humans and non-humans, but certainly between rich and poor and different racial groups and so on. This movement emerged out of an issue in the United States in a place called Warren County in North Carolina. And in the late 70s and early 80s, there was an enormous concern raised by a community in Warren County over the government's proposition to create a hazardous waste dump in their neighborhood. And that neighborhood was selected Not because of the properties of the soil or how useful it was to contain those PCBs and toxic wastes that they wanted to dump there. But they think for other reasons, largely because it was an African-American community and 20% of the population at that time was living under the poverty line. And it turned out to be an enormous point of civil unrest. And the first time that we saw in modern history, the intersection between the protests around civil rights coming together with environmental rights. Now, that landfill was built in 1982, but it has always been thought of as the beginning of a movement to end environmental racism and seek environmental justice. So environmental justice is defined in the SAGE Encyclopedia of Action Research as a social movement and a theoretical lens that's focused on fairness in the distribution of environmental benefits and burdens, and in the processes that determine those distributions. It is concerned with both the fair treatment and the significant involvement of poor, racialized and indigenous communities in environmental policy and natural resource development decisions. End of quote. So I'd like to leave you with that today and ask you to think about where your environmental ethics lie. Where do they come from? Is it a perspective of an anthropocentric or human-focused worldview? Is it more biocentric, that all life matters, or ecocentric, where we think about the system as a whole does it lean towards deep ecology where we think that we need to radically change our behavior and or a perspective of ecofeminism and environmental justice or some combination of these perspectives i leave you with that to think about your environmental ethics and the motivations that we can all have to move forward so Next episode, we're going to be talking about my story that hopefully will give you some insights into both environmental sustainability and how that meets well-being as played out in my life. I can't wait to talk to you again. Until then, live well green, my flourishing friends. Bye for now.